He's worthy, isn't he, church? Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be became flesh, and the title of this morning's sermon is The Word Became Flesh. I want to say uh, a special welcome to our youngsters running around. I know normally you guys would be a new breed kids, but we wanted to give everybody a chance to be gathered together in this place to worship so no teachers were missing out on service. So it might be a little noisy, amen? Might be a few distractions running around, amen? Jesus didn't come as a full-blown man. He came as a child. And so we're excited that you're with us. If you're visiting, my name's Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at New Breed Church. And so we want to consider this idea that the Word became flesh. You know, when it comes to Christmas, there's always an an anticipation, isn't there? I don't know when it starts for many of you, but I'd say for most of Thanksgiving meal, doesn't it? It's almost as if Thanksgiving is kind of the prelude for Christmas, and once Thanksgiving passes, Christmas is very much in our sight. And I'll be honest, even as an adult, there's still a bit of anticipation when it comes to Christmas, but as I reflect on that, I remember that it's nothing like how it was when I was a child. Do you remember that? excited about what's going to happen, about what could be under the tree, but there is, there's this anticipation for Christmas that comes with being a child that's somewhat unmatched. I'm reminded of it as I engage with my girls during this season. So we're doing, in the Matala house, we do an Advent tree with our girls. So basically every day we're reading a story kind of leading up to the birth of Jesus, and there's an ornament that goes with each story, and try to catch up. Um, you know you're pushing it when your kids are in bed and they're like, can we just go to sleep? And can we stop reading these stories? But we're going to get on track. But, but there's an ornament that goes with each story uh, that kind of hangs on its own little tree. And every day the girls tend to remind us of how many days are left until Christmas. Often it's the first thing that they would tell us in the 10 more days till Christmas. Mom, there's, there's eight more days until Christmas, and it's, as every day gets closer, the anticipation builds, but as I was thinking about their anticipation, I was thinking about the fact that their anticipation, even my anticipation, is somewhat limited, because for the girls, the anticipation is limited to a few things. It's limited to visiting family. We're getting ready to head up in Minis- to Minnesota, and their cousins and their, their grandparents and some of their aunts and uncles, and there's an anticipation there. There's an anticipation for trees that are going to be, or for gifts that are going to be under the tree on Christmas morning. They're excited to see what they get. But their anticipation is also limited because Christmas comes every year for them. So they're not waiting for years and years and years for Christmas to come. Reflect on the anticipation that must have been present for the people of Israel. Because for the people of God, waiting for that first Christmas, their anticipation wasn't a year. It wasn't 10 days. It wasn't eight days. Their anticipation was thousands of years in the making. Can you imagine Thousands of God told Satan that I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That was a promise of victory coming through some descendant of Eve. But the anticipation grew among the people of God as God told Abraham in Genesis 22 verses 17 and 18 that I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as nudity gates of of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. 
You can feel the anticipation building when God tells Jacob in Genesis 28, 14, that your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out toward the west and the east and the north and the south, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You can feel tangibly the anticipation rising as Isaiah writes to a people who are in dark. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. All throughout the Old Testament, one theme, every prophet, priest, and king, even as God is silent through the intertestamental period, God is cultivating this anticipation. An anticipation of what? An anticipation of hope and joy, of deliverance and salvation, ultimately an, an anticipation for the Savior of the world. You, the weight of the words that John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14. When John says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. You see, this is not John trying to write a clever introduction to his gospel. This is not John presenting a theological doctrine to be examined. This is John to struggle and doubt in the midst of uncertainty and questions when nothing seemed to be making sense and the waiting just seemed so long. The Word finally became flesh and He dwelt among us. And so as John concludes this prologue, there are four truths that he presents that he wants his readers to hold on to because we can't forget that John's aim this gospel is to show his readers that this Jesus, born of a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem, he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so of these four truths that John presents, the first is come, the word has come. Now again, look, look at the beginning of verse 14 there. I'm going to read it again. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in that one sentence, John stresses two significant things about the coming of Jesus. Here's the, he became flesh. Now, we, we've got to be clear here. John is not saying that when the word became flesh, it was when Jesus came into existence. Because he already established in verses 1 through 3 that, that the word has existed before he ever took on flesh. Do you remember in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created. So, so John has already established that Jesus has always been. But what makes the incarnation, what makes Jesus' birth in this world so extravagant is that this word that existed before the foundation of the world has wrapped himself in flesh. 
Paul says it like this in Philippians, the same attitude is that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the incarnation. It's not that Jesus ceased to be God when he came to earth, but rather that in his divinity, he added to it humanity. I like how Colin Cruz explains it when he writes this. He says, the word became flesh. He entered the world by becoming flesh, by becoming human. And he says, the word mode of being the word. How the word who was God could become human is not explained by John at all. This actually became the subject of much debate in the early centuries of the church. However, the evangelist was not interested in explaining how the word became human. He was more concerned to explain what the consequences of this were. Jesus did not cease to be God. He was the word made flesh. In his divinity, he was fully God. In his humanity, he was fully human, God in flesh. But in addition to the word being flesh, John wants us to note that the word became flesh and he did something. He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Now, I know for many of you, just a minute, because that statement is amazing, that God dwelt among us. Because when John says he dwelt among us, that phrase translated in English is actually just one word in the original language. And the word literally means he pitched a tent or, check this out, he tabernacled. He tabernacled. And so so it was localized in the tabernacle. Do you remember that in Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34? Let me me read this to you. It says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Check this out. But Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was over the tabernacle by day and there was a fire inside the cloud by night visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. And so in Exodus, God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle. And that same word is used for Jesus. Jesus is God dwelling. Now we have to, again, pause and just for a moment appreciate the magnitude of that statement. That God came to us. Because all throughout the history of this world, Man has tried to get to God. And people's attempt to be perfect from Exodus on. And ultimately, that's what so many of the world's religions are. An attempt to get to God. But the majesty of the Christmas message, please hear me, is not, it's not that we were able to get to Him. It's not that any one of us was good enough. Not that any one of us was holy enough. Not that any one of us was worthy to God. God came to us. And for those of us who are in Christ, let me just say this. That's not just the Christmas story. That's our story. How many of us in this room weren't looking for God and yet God came to us? How many of us in in this room were in the... How many of us in this room would have never thought to darken the doors of a church 
but praise God, he went out of the church and came to us. How many of us in this room were content to worship ourselves, our own plans, our own prosperity, our own self-exaltation, and in the midst of our pride, God came to us? Light came into the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that when Jesus intended to seek and save the lost, he showed up. He came to us because I certainly wasn't going to go to him. But praise God that he was seeking, but we'll call it a freebie for this morning, okay? Going back to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, have this same attitude, adopt this same mindset that was Christ Jesus. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant. Jesus showed up, right? And it's meant to be our example. Here's what I mean. Jesus showed up. He stepped into our story. He stepped into our struggle, and he stepped into our pain, and he sought us out. And if we are ever going to make much of Jesus, that's how we have to do ministry too. We cannot be content to stay in this building with these people, because when Jesus came to seek and save the lost, he didn't do it from a distance. The word became, he understood the pain of being human, and in all of that, he did not sin. He knows what it means to be like us because he is human. He showed up. But the very fact that Jesus showed up should motivate not only our ministry, but more than anything, it should motivate our praise. This leads to this word who became flesh. This word is worthy. He's worthy. Look again, the second part of verse 14 through verse 15. It says, we, we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he exists with complete clarity that the fact that the word has come should drive us to worship him because he is worthy. But notice what John says. Again, there's so much packed into this. John says, we have eight of that statement. We read it and take it for granted that, that, that we have seen his glory. We have observed his glory. But with that statement, John is indicating that a shift has taken place in the entire thread of Scripture. I mean, this changes the game for the people of God because there were other times when God's glory was present. Even going back to the tabernacle, that passage we read in Exodus 40, I tried to, to stress it, but did you catch what it said in verses 34 and 35, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, so the glory of God is present, but it says Moses was unable to enter the tent. Why? Because Moses couldn't go in, because no one could see the glory of God and live. But that wasn't even the first experience for Moses. He knew this to be true because of what took place before that in Exodus 33. Do you remember Exodus 33? Okay, assuming not, so I'm going to tell you what happened in Exodus 33. Moses, Moses is mine. 
I don't know if he was like all hopped up on having the law and thought that he was something special. Maybe it was out of humility, but I don't know his motivation. But Moses says to God in, in, in Exodus 33, verse 18, please show me your glory. Well, God, God loves. You know what, Moses? Here's what I'm going to do. I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then it says, but he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, here, here is the glory passes by. I will put you in the crevice of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away. This is how good God is. He says, Moses, I'm going to protect you. You want to see my glory, but I know it will kill you. So I'm going to put you in a rock, and I'm going to shield you with my own hand. But then once I... I'd be willing to bet that the back of God was enough to break Moses. But we don't have to just look at Moses. We could take Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Do you remember that? It says, in the year that King, this is Isaiah writing, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high above him, each had six wings. They, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew, and one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smell of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. But here's what's amazing about Isaiah's vision. He didn't see the king. That's not what it says. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. In the Hebrew, that word for the hymn, it literally means the hymn to break him, to say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But if that doesn't get you, just think about the seraphim that are there. We overlook the seraphim. They're angels, right? They, they are literally fiery beings that are flying around. It's not the little baby in a diaper. Can I just say that? I don't know where we got that. Some of y'all probably have that on your tree right now. But that's not... With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And have you ever wondered why they do that? Well, let me break it down for you. The angels, the seraphims have one job. One job. To declare for all of eternity... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Do you know how I know that? Because when John has a vision in Revelation, he sees seraphim too at the end of time. And you know what they're doing? They're flying around, severed their eyes. Well, I think the answer might be that they knew that the God they were flying around was just too good for them to look at. And why did they cover their feet? Well, because these angels know that the ground that God walks on is holy ground. And so why would they fly? Because they dare not look at, they dare not touch the ground where the glory of the holy of God and live. And yet John says, we have observed his glory. How? We see it in Jesus. The glory. But if that's not enough for you to bow and worship, John, John throws something else in there. He's saying, just in case there's any confusion that we're talking about Jesus, he brings up John the Baptist again. 
He says, you remember John, we talked about John earlier in the prologue. He says, John testified about him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he, something about this Jesus. This is no mere mortal man. This is God in flesh who deserves praise and worship. He deserves our lives. This is the one the prophets long to see. This is the one whom the pre came before was but a shadow, a picture, a veiled image of this word made flesh. This is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And what John wants us to reckon with is that if this is who Jesus is, he is worthy. Let me clarify, I'm just not talking about the Sunday morning kind of worship. I'm talking about the every breath you take kind of worship. I'm talking about the every word you speak kind of worship. I'm talking about the everything you do worship. And even Jesus is. He is worthy of all that we are. But it's almost as if John's like, let me just show you a little bit more. Because after he talks about the worth, he reminds us that the word brings grace. received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. John wants us to remember that Jesus didn't come because he wanted to hang out. Jesus didn't come because he thought wants us to understand that Jesus came because we needed grace. And in Jesus, there is grace upon grace. I like how Paul says it in Ephesians 1 verse 7. He says, in him, that's in Jesus, we have redemptive grace that he lavishes on us. With all wisdom and understanding. I love that. His grace, he lavishes on us. But it's interesting because when you go back to John, in John 1 verse 17, he brings up the law. And he says that the law was given through Moses. But, but grace came position of ideas. And John's reminding us that, that what the law could not do, Jesus did. And he's reminding us that the law was never meant to save us. Do, do you remember what Paul says in, in Romans 3, verse 20? He says, for no one will be justified. In, in, and so the law was not given to show us how we get to God. The law was given to reveal to us that we can't get there. The law was given to reveal to us what sin actually is. And you and I know that every one of us struggles with sin. Moses didn't even make it down from the mountain with the law before the people of God, before sin creeps right back in. But the good news that John is proclaiming is that while Moses gave the law, Jesus offers grace and not just any grace, but grace upon grace, God's grace lavished on us. Let me, let me say it another way for you. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the word made flesh is that there is your sin is great. God's grace is always greater. And let me tell you, that's good news for both you who are unbelievers 
and you who are believers. So for those of you who are unbelievers, let me say this. The majesty of God's grace is that you don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. Because can I just tell you a secret that some of us learned early on and some of us still trying to figure out? You're never going to is that there is grace that is greater than your sin. I'm so thankful I didn't have to clean myself up before Jesus would look at me. I still wouldn't be there. So for those of you who are here and, and you may be wrestling with faith or, or, or entrusting Jesus, let me tell you that, that, that God does not need you to fix you. And yet God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus. But let me, let me speak to the believer because that's good news for you too. I mean, let, me, let me put it this way. If God's grace is greater than our sin, then it means that God does not get tired of forgiving you. Can I tell you, Christian, who has struggled with that same stupid sin or forgiveness for it, God never gets sick of giving that forgiveness to you because his grace is lavished on us. And there is freedom in that. It means, again, even for you who are believers, the expectation now is still not that because you've received Christ, you clean yourself up to keep Christ. It's that even our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our trespasses and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we need a shift in our modern church culture because while we don't want to underestimate sin, we don't want to place it in a place where grace can't touch it anymore. Your sin may be great, but your, but the grace that you have received, but again, how was this grace made known? Well, that's the gospel that, that we proclaim. The grace was made known in the person of Jesus. Because we've got to think about what grace is. Grace is, is God giving us a free gift that we don't deserve. Well, what is that gift? It's his own righteousness in the place of our wickedness. It makes us new in Christ Jesus, right? We believe that Jesus showed up. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he went and died a death that was ours to die. He hung on a cross and he bled and died. And in that moment, God poured, poured out the full measure of his hatred and wrath towards sin on his son. And he died and was, was sufficient that he is enough. Then we get his righteousness as he takes away our wickedness. That's grace. That's the gift that's given through Jesus Christ. But here's what, what John wants us to see. And I'm I'm trying to bring this thing home. I, I really wasn't trying to preach a long one because we had all these kids, and so I think I'm doing okay. I forgot to start my time. Not only does the word bring grace, but the word brings access. Look again at verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. It reminds us that not only does Jesus reveal the Father in his incarnation, but Jesus provides access to the Father. Something that had once been eviscerated because of sin. Jesus provides a way to be reconciled back. Adam and Eve were living the purpose they were created for, to walk in right fellowship with God, to delight in him and him alone, to find their greatest satisfaction in him and him alone, to, to experience the joy of living in fellowship with God. And, and we know how the story goes. Satan deceived. 
Adam and Eve ate, and in that moment, the world broke, struggles entered in. But the greatest thing that happened, the most devastating thing that happened, was that we were separated from God. Because God had to remove Adam and Eve from the garden because a holy God cannot dwell eternally in the presence of sinful people. And from Genesis 3 until Jesus' death and resurrection, access. Do you remember what separated the place where God dwells from the people? It was a giant curtain. As we tell our kids, it was the keep out curtain. We could not get to God. There was no way for us to get to him. But the majesty of Jesus coming as a baby and living the perfect life and dying the death that he died and raising from the dead, we can't forget to in the temple. And we have access to the Father because of what Christ has done. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we also have obtained access to the glory of God. We can boast in the glory of God now because we have access through faith in Jesus. Because Jesus has come, because Jesus lived and died and was raised from the dead, because of God's unmerited love for us, we have access to the God that we abandoned, restored to our created purpose by walking in fellowship with God once again, all because the word was made flesh and through him we have access. And brothers and sisters, that's the glory of Christmas. If Jesus never comes, we are without hope. If Jesus never comes, we are destined to walk in darkness. If Jesus, but what we celebrate on Christmas Day and every day in between is the beautiful truth that the Word became flesh. And so let me bring this to a close and just say this to you. So this Christmas, as we gather together in just a few days with family, presents, that you would remember why we celebrate. We celebrate because God keeps his promises. We celebrate because the word became flesh and he is worthy of our worship. And he is worthy because of who he is and he is worthy because of what he has done in him. In the city of David, our hope was born. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Sometimes, Lord, I feel like common because it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around. But God, I pray that through the Spirit's power that we would, we would catch just even a little bit of a greater glimpse of the majesty that the Word became flesh. That we would be in awe of the fact that you have loved us so much in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our abandonment, in spite of our treason that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray that the fact that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose from the dead would be our motivation to praise. It's because you are good and you are faithful.
and you keep your promise. So God, this season and every season to come, give us grace to worship you because you are worthy. It's in the precious name of Jesus.